0: Jasoncharles.net. Art, art, and culture. You are listening to Lost Angeles with Laura Craven on Jasoncharles.net. This is Laura Craven with Los Angeles on jasoncharles.net podcast network. Today, you will hear part two of our two-part interview with filmmaker Steve Dubrow, who created the documentary 18th and Grand, chronicling the life of the Olympic auditorium. It's interesting, as you mentioned, you know, using the term seedy, because I think that that helped to feed its next phase of life, which was punk rock music. And I think being isolated and being in a dangerous part of Los Angeles, as it might have been characterized, really... You know, fed into that. This is where kids wanted to be. They wanted to be far away from their parents, the suburbs. They wanted to be in a place that could be looked upon as dirty or kind of dark and corrupt. So, if you could talk about how that punk rock music promotion, I think beginning in the the early to mid '90s.
1: No, earlier. It it was. It started in uh, the first punk show was uh, Public Image Limited in 1980, May of 1980. Oh, I didn't realize um, that. Really. And it was, uh, it was a very important show in L.A. because the Sex Pistols had never played L.A. Uh, so there was all this pent-up, and, and there was a, a big punk scene here, and there was a, a lot of expectation and excitement to see Johnny Rotten. Um, even though he was now John Lydon and it wasn't the pistols, there was an expectation and excitement for that show. And the fact that it took place at the Olympic was sort of perfect. It was this really interesting, perfect juxtaposition. Um, that first show from all I hear was, uh, I mean, they also the the opening acts were really interesting too. It was Los, Los Lobos making their punk rock audience debut. They had played mostly; they're from East L.A. and had played family parties, quinceaneras, and and things in East L.A. And the Tito Lariva from the Plugs, um, who was sort of brought. They were the opening act. I guess thought it would be a a great sort of punk rock maneuver to bring. Um, Los Lobos, who at the time were really playing traditional Mexican American music, right. to the Olympic culture, and so they came out and got pelted with, with you know, uh, spit on, thrown, you know, uh, bottles, and and they ended up fleeing the stage after a couple of songs. So that was uh, that was something. And P.I.L. was also very different than the Sex Pistols, and they played, you know, they played music that confounded the expectations of the crowd, which was which incited the crowd too. So it was a it was a sort of perfect fit because it was violent theater and the Olympic had always been a sort of theater of violence. Um and uh so That's a great way to put it that show kinda kicked it off, but then a couple it, it took a little while for it to get going. It was really Gary Tovar who founded Golden Voice who was the brilliant mind behind really turning the Olympic into uh, a very successful hardcore punk venue. Um, Probably, he says, and I don't dispute it, the most successful hardcore punk venue in the world because of its size. High praise. Well, because, you know, and he brought a lot of bands from England who were used to playing 500, 700 people, 1,000 maybe, on a Mm -hmm. huge night. And here they were in LA, the exploited or, you know, GHB or GBH um, playing uh, before 5,000 people. Uh, Dead Kennedys playing 6,000 people. That was the biggest gig they'd ever done was at the Olympics. So And he would pack the bills with a lot of bands. So they were events. And the fact that it was... As you say, it was isolated. It was indestructible. You really, this, I mean, this building was indestructible. It, to this day, stands, has survived earthquakes, you know, and uh, multiple riots in that building where they literally let the, set the place on fire. Um, back in the boxing days, the riots at the boxing days were insane. Um, so one of my favorite lines that Gary says in the film is... I knew I'd be welcome there because I'd seen what they'd had before. And punk rock just, it was, it was like a supernova flaming out. It was this last dying gasp. And even though it did have events after that, that was sort of 80, mid 80s. It had plenty of things that happened after the mid 80s. But to me, that was really the exclamation point at the end of this of the really great era of the Olympic. After that, it it had, there were raves, it still had film shoots, um, it was the scene of Rage Against the Machines, final shows, even right. though they, they did come back later when I'm sure money or whatever brought them back, but they they chose that to be the place of their final shows. Right, and
0: that was in 2000 and filmed. So, yeah, so that there, stays. That's that will in always history. exist.
1: And um, you know, Green Day premiered American Idiot at the Olympic Auditorium, so it had its sort of little bits at the end. Um, but really, in terms of its being relevant, having a sort of relevance in the history of LA i would have you know it's 25 to to 85 to me after that it's 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 bits and pieces but for its for it being a very important part of la's history it it was about 60 years
0: yeah and now its importance is to a very specific part of los angeles the korean Church of Jesus Christ. If that's the, the, the it's thing.
1: the the Glory Church of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. um, and it's a Korean. So the Needlemans owned it from the early '80s, and then they sold it to the church. I think around 2005. Right, 2005. And so now it is a Korean church, which of which I've attended quite a few services. Yeah,
0: that's that's really kind of sweet.
1: It that. is. I mean, I you know, it's it's their home. At least for now. I don't know if they intend to keep it forever, but my feeling is I'm glad that it isn't, it exists. It's not torn down. It's still there, you know, 90 some years later, it's still standing. And they're, you know, knowing LA and its history of destroying important landmark buildings that have both architectural and cultural relevance, it's just great that it's there and it's right on the 10 freeway at the corner of 18th and Grand. Whenever you drive by it, you see it. It may feel now for many people quite impenetrable or un- unknown or why is it there or what is that building? For tons of Angelinos, they drive by it and think of it as the Olympic and it, and it has resonance and meaning and I see that through just through the feedback that I've gotten about the film and through our social media is how much it touches people in a way that I had no idea how much it would until I went down this strange vortex that sucked me in I don't know how it happened but it's formed my understanding of Los Angeles in a different way So much of L.A. history is told through Hollywood and, you know, and and the Olympic touches that. But what's so important to me about the Olympic and what's so relevant to me is that it mattered to everyday people. It was working class people, Mexican-Americans being a huge part of it, but Mexicans coming up from the border when when there was no talk of a wall, when the border was far more fluid and people would come up. They would have it as a weekend entertainment, and they would come back down in the same way that we would go to Tijuana or wherever. It was much more fluid. And so they were a big part of the audience. And white working class people and African-American people, it was a working class people and gangsters and business people and Hollywood people. It was a, a weird I don't say melting pot because it was stratified even within the building in that way that Mm -hmm. L.A. is. And that all of these enclaves can exist side by side and not necessarily, you know, interact with each other that much. I think that's why someone like Jonathan Gold, like losing him was such an important thing because someone like Jonathan was a through food that's the one way that I found I feel like LA now has sort of found a way to respect each other um, and respect each other's cultures but overall we we rub against each other and we don't really interact and the church is is emblematic of that as well in that here's this building they they welcome anyone who comes to the church on Sunday they're happy to have you come mm-hmm. yet at the same time they don't quite know how to interact with their history, they have a very ambivalent relationship with me and this project in that part of the church is very welcoming of this. And I think it's really the younger generation. And then part of the older generation is very, um, and I think a lot of it's language too. I think there's a, there's a um, I don't yes, want over, to overstate the, the cultural sort of divide, but there is a, there's, a, there's part of them that's very like, this is our place now. Mm -hmm. and and that past is bad that was satan at work you know that's the devil you know um my relationship with the church is very emblematic of los angeles in that i'm embraced on one hand and on the other hand i'm looked at as you know what are you doing here and why are you you know we want to move on this is our place now and it's fascinating because in the same place where the ring was And you can still see the lighting truss is still there. Mm -hmm. There's still the evidence of the old building. It was never been extensively renovated. I mean, it was kind of by the Needlemans did a crappy job because it was later rebranded the Grand Olympic Auditorium Mm -hmm. just at the very end.
0: And simply because the street name was Correct,
1: and it was Bob Arum was involved with the Needlemans and they tried to, you know, they tried to refashion it And in that terrible nineties architecture way where they just figured we'll scrape everything off of it that used to exist in matter instead of that. And so they made it very like bland. And so they took off the marquee, they scraped off a lot of it and they painted it And it. It's lost a lot of the detail work. I would say if you go in a lot of the bones are the same, but, you know, where they worship, where the Koreans worship uh, the most fervent worshipers is right under the lighting truss. That's where they're like s- talking to God and having their moments. So it's almost like a vortex in some way. It still yeah. has this sort of primal power, whether yeah. you're worshiping God or you're worshiping the fighters or mm-hmm. people bled and died in in that very ring. You know, it, where that exists, where people are praying is the spot. It's a power spot from my view of things it has this there's something that reflects there and even though you can't it's not immediately accessible because you really have to go and you have to experience their culture and do go to their thing go to their service on a sunday and you can see it as long as you're respectful and i mean they'll welcome you and they'll want to talk to you and but it's kind of fun you go in and there's korean food and they uh, in the morning and there's a whole community it's very welcoming in fact, I'm very involved with one of the pastors, and I've become very close. And uh, he does a lot of work amongst the homeless. And he and I work. I've sort of partnered with him and some other people to do something um, regarding homeless outreach. And oh, what a great uh, in altruistic the
0: thing to come out of that. So yeah, That's...
1: it's. I mean, it's a very. I mean, he and I just found this unlikely friendship. We found we had a lot more in common, even though culturally we're quite different in our beliefs in some ways are quite different. We're our core values are really similar. And so we've come together. So it's a, that's why I say like, I've fallen down a rabbit hole with this project and it keeps, um, it keeps echoing. And I think it's super valuable way of, of seeing the city. And I hope that beyond the film, I can keep doing the work because I see it really as a cultural history project as much as i mean the documentary is but one part of it it really is it's cultural history it it takes time and money and and all of that to do it but it's super valuable and what's i mean what's nice has been it's been recognized i've gotten i got a grant from the east side arts initiative which is tied to la plaza museum uh down downtown um i have become very close with uh, William Estrada, who is the head of the history department at the Natural History Museum, who's uh, uh, in the film and is an Olympic fanatic himself. And uh, he recognizes the value of, historians really do value what I'm doing and they think Uh, it's groundbreaking work. And so I'm really, I'm happy to have that validation. I know it is intrinsically from, the history that I've gotten from, as I said, people who started going to the Olympic in the, the late 30s. Right. You know, Don Fraser who first went and saw Golden, he's still alive, who, who who first went and saw Golden Gloves fights there in 1937 when he was 10 years old. And Kiki Baltazar, who started going in 44 and would take the streetcar from East LA back before the... So, you know, the streetcars, LA was so well served and the Olympic was served by all of these streetcar lines that came together around the Olympics. So you could get to it from everywhere. Right. And that's one of the things that Gary Tovar, the punk rock impresario, talks about it being right at the center of the city, the heart mm-hmm. of the city. And the, that LA being this, almost like this, uh, you know, the the freeways being the arteries and veins that come into the 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 center and the Olympic being this sort of heart Exactly, Um, which is such an amazing uh, metaphor Mm -hmm. that I really appreciate. He's a brilliant guy, by the way. Um, But I'm telling you, the people that I've met and interviewed and spoken with about this project, you know, from Julio Cesar Chavez, who won his first title at the Olympic in 84, I believe. Um, Oscar De La Hoya who I haven't interviewed yet but he won his first title at the Olympic but going back through all of these these folks it's just an amazing it's an amazing story and it it matters it's a building that matters to people mm-hmm. so
0: and well I think Los Angeles can be really grateful to have you as a historian for sure and mm-hmm. what are the next steps for 18th and grand when will people be able to to enjoy this film and and learn the
1: vast knowledge that you've brought together. This year, soon, production is wrapped, it's cut, and we're making some refinements and looking for a distributor now. So we're we're close. You know, this process of culling this down into a cohesive narrative that draws this together has been very challenging to put that into a 90-minute film. You're inevitably going to leave out things that and people that matter to the fans. And I want to please the fans, but ultimately I, you know, it's a, it's a film and it has to be a cohesive narrative that, that, that draws in, um, anyone to follow this journey. And in many ways it's the journey of Eileen. My main characters, I would say are the Olympic auditorium, Los Angeles, and Eileen Eaton. Um, and, and weaving those together, in a way that that sort of has a a cumulative effect and a a narrative has been challenging but it's come together now and i feel close it's close and and people the the small group of people who have seen the the cut have been pleased and i'm i'm starting to like it i'm it's i'm i'm my own worst critic (laughs) well that is good (laughs) and until it's you know it's like it has to be right and and it's almost there well any true artist i think has a problem
0: with bringing finality to the project. So therein lies your true artistic intent. The rub the sure. rub, yeah. Therein <laughs> lies the
1: rub. It's 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 almost there, but it's it'll be good at the end. Right. It's almost there.
0: Right. Well, I'm so excited to see it, and perhaps when it is distributed, we can meet up again and talk about how it's going to be released and how sure. people can see it. But absolutely. Till then, I just want to thank you for giving us the time today to learn about the Olympic Auditorium. And I really appreciate all the amazing knowledge that you have about this topic. I've learned so much and look forward to the next time we can visit.
1: Excellent. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Steve. This concludes our two-part interview with Steve Dubrow, filmmaker and creator of the documentary 18th and Grand. Thanks for listening to Los Angeles on jasoncharles.net, Podcast Network. You've been listening to Los Angeles with Laura Craven on jasoncharles.net. jasoncharles.net Deep, deep talk, talk, Deep, deep Sounds Talk, Deep sounds.